Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you by HJC Helmets. I'm your host, Joe Robinson. With me as ever, James Spender. I'm with you as ever, Joe Robinson. I'm James Spender. And with the Tour de France just about to start, a very special guest today, the voice of cycling himself, Mr. Phil Liggett. Uh, But before then, the things that have been getting us moving and the things that have been getting us moaning in the world of cycling in the last two weeks. Hello, James. How are you? Um, It's very warm. We're recording today and I'm very noticed. It's very warm, isn't it? We've recorded today and you've very noticed it's very warm. Yeah, it's very warm, mate. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to say. Should we just talk about how warm? I mean, that's what everyone talks about, isn't it, in this country? Oh, isn't it too, isn't it so warm? It's so, have you put on your summer duvet yet? Are you sleeping with the windows open? Your lower tug. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you, have you dialed down the tug? You know, the thing is, though, to be fair, I have actually dialed down the tugs. I'm on a four and a half. Oh, I just go sheet, mate, this time of year. Yeah, oh, I, I, I like to leave, I like sheet is my granny gear. I like to leave one, you know, one level in reserve. Right. Don't want to go all in in my smallest gear ratio. Fair. No, that's fair enough. I'm, I mean, the listeners can't see us because this is a podcast, but if they could see us, they'd see that both of us have very shiny faces from what we can only describe as immense heat. Exactly. I am li- I'm a literal literal furnace. But just a little eye behind the, you know, a, a peek behind the microphone. Obviously, we have to record these podcasts in pretty soundproof rooms to give you the best audio quality we can which for me involves having windows shut, all the doors shut, the blinds down, uh, and being fully encompassed by uh, sort of pillows and towels, which in effect just makes your room into a sauna. Yes, it does. <laughs> so I'm very warm, James, No, you... I hadn't mentioned previously. No, you, li- you, do, you do look like, uh, you, you look like you're wearing some kind of oil. Are you wearing some kind of oil? I mean, you're shiny. Always, you're shiny. always. Yeah, SPF, yeah. SPF 4... Uh, Hawaiian Tropic. Yeah, what's that? There's sun cream, isn't there? That's sort of almost like reverse FPF. Um, are you? Is, is, I'm, I'm going to admit it's called Hawaiian Tropic, yeah. and it's oil, yeah. and it helps. Uh, it helps like sort of intensify your tan, and it smells of coconut. And I do, and it's got, have been known to use it. I bet you. Well, yeah, all you lot down in Kent are doing that. It's got carotene in it, isn't it? Is it carotene? Whatever the um, orange thing is in carrots that makes you orange. Yeah. So it basically Probably. dyes your skin while simultaneously giving you cancer. Great. But at least I look nice and tanned. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of what Britain's going for, isn't it? That sort of leads me nicely into what I've been liking. And it's not quite... Well, I mean, it is the sun. But with the sun comes the sea. I'm originally from Portsmouth. I now live in London. I went back to Portsmouth at the weekend uh, with our erstwhile colleague, Mr. Peter Stewart. For those of you who may or may not have realised, he left our magazine, went to a competitor. But we still hung out. He came down. He and I and his lovely wife sat on the beach and I sat there for way too long and I didn't put enough sun cream on. And it's, there's only, because our arms as cyclists are out all the time, pretty much. Oh, and they're, they're, they're hardy, hardy old things, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Literally, my, my arms could sleep outside in the Sahara and they would be absolutely fine. But little parts of your body don't really think about aren't so good. So for me, turns out it's my ankles because you're always wearing socks. You know, yes. We're not triathletes, are we? We're self-respecting cyclists. It wasn't wearing socks, got really quite burnt ankles. Like it turns out the ankle skin is softer it's 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 like it's softer than a kitten's stomach. It is it is basically newborn. So so that happened. That was less fun, but I really did enjoy the sun. And we should, you know, slip slap slop, as the old Aussie mantra goes. We should really be wearing more sunscreen. Buzz Lerman, as Buzz Lerman did tell us, the class of ninety seven. Um 
And so is that the thing you're liking and disliking? Anything else that you're disliking? Well, partly uh, part and parcel of going down there um, is going for rides, and it's nice going up in up country from in, from Pompey. But just you know, sometimes it's really nice to go up and down something like a seafront early morning when it's empty, and it's just you know crispy morning. But just to go, for, you know, I'm not riding a TT bike, but just to go kind of flat out if you can, without worrying about traffic and lights and stuff because you know, there's nothing there to worry about so actually it's that weird thing where sometimes riding on the flat is just great because we spend so much time um trying to bust the gut and find the steepest hill yeah and actually just like nailing it at 40k up and down on the flat then jumping in the sea i mean 40k an hour i get you <laughs> yeah 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 i had one of my far i mean it wasn't the average speed admittedly but i had long stretches um hitting 40k an hour right which was great i mean with a li- tiny little liquor wind i'm not saying what, i'm doing what that bike are we doing this one uh i've got what's uh it's a j laverack it's a smaller boutique brand nice. i'd say um designed in england and made uh to the exacting specifications of the laverack brothers in taiwan right but it's a really actually it's a lovely um titanium bike it rides really nicely best thing about it yeah, i would say smooth as a kitten's belly also smooth as a kitten's belly i mean there's lots of references to i mean it's smooth as a kitten's belly as uh, i don't know as sharp as a kitten's nails in the handling department but what i've really really loved about it specifically uh ain't specific to this bike mind you but it has 28 mil tires on it tubeless you know which i like blah 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 it doesn't really matter it's just the fact it's got 28 mil tires and my goodness like i love a pair of continental gp 5000s great right. tires you love them too in all yeah. of their different guises but 28 mil like for me 80 kilos 65 psi rear 60 front and it just absolutely corners like a dream it's so nice you've got so much grip there you can really feel it and it's uber comfortable like absolutely love it man absolutely love it so yeah great first impressions really good bike there's a lot to unpack there you know i'm liking quite a lot of, i'm giving i'm sending you mixed messages well you know what you know what there'll be a review of it in a future ep- uh, issue of cyclist magazine and you can buy cyclist magazine either on the cyclist shop shop.cyclist.co.uk or you can subscribe free issues for a fiver i believe cyclistmag.co.uk forward slash subscriptions so you know what get involved there and read james's a thousand words of ethereal quality about that jay laverick bike oh, thank you he's not going to give it all away here for free no. we're not we're not fools no we're not fools we don't and we do ride them you know more than once up and down the seafront to test them so I'm, you know that's not my final opinion uh and yeah just to round it off haven't really been liking aphids i don't know how i'm on the 10th floor of a big block of flats and they get up here and they're all over my geraniums so that's me how about you uh what am i liking um I'm liking the fact that Tour de France is going to start this weekend, James. Oh, that's that's true, isn't it? That's quite nice. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm, I won't be... So I'm actually going to be in Scotland for the first weekend of the Tour de France uh, as I was meant to be watching some rugby. I was meant to be going and watch the British and Irish Lions play versus Japan. Fortunately, we, our tickets have been refunded uh, due to COVID restrictions at the ground, but we're still going to go up to Edinburgh and enjoy ourselves in the lovely city uh, up there. But um, apart from that, I'm going to be watching every single minute of this year's tour because... Uh, you know, you can watch every stage is broadcast live for the entire stage. It took a while to get that out. <laughs> yeah, it really did. But yeah, I do really like. I like. You know what I love? I love the month of July, just sort of June and July, watching the Tour de France. You know, sticking it in on in the morning at eleven o'clock, and just having it on in the background, and it just sort of rolls through as I as I work, and I can sort of like dip in and out when something's happening or. 
you know, a nice chateau or a nice castle comes onto the screen that I want to learn about. And I enjoy <laughs> that. I enjoy it. It's like a it's like a comfort blanket for me in the month of July. Yeah. Sort of having that on in the background. And then you sort of intertwine that with Wimbledon. Love a bit of Wimbles. As well. And uh, and obviously this year this year the tour will be sort of sort of overlapping with the European Championships football. So for me it'll be a beautiful month of sport in which I'll be fully consuming 24-7 everything from tennis to football to cycling to rugby. You're going to have all of your monitors on at once. Every every room will be a different sport. Yeah, exactly. And if you think I'm hot now, with all those monitors radiating heat, I'll, it will be like I'm in a sub-Saharan sort of climate. It'll be like you're in the pit in the New York Stock Exchange. Exactly. Well, that sounds fantastic. You just got me thinking there, Wimbledon, that's an unsung kind of uh, sporting thing that we do in this country, isn't it? It kind of flies under the radar a lot of the time, but it does bring with it one of the best things about summer, which to me is strawberries and cream. So I'd level that question at you, Joseph. What is what is the summer, like defining summer food stuff for you, where it's like, oh, I, love getting, I love it when summer comes around because we get to eat, insert food stuff here. You know what it is? And I think I've mentioned this before. It's a nice bag of open crisps at the pub outside with a few pints. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, you can have that in the summer as well. You can have it in the winter as well. But I do enjoy a nice, refreshing cold pint outside in the sun. And you're just sort of ripped open a bag of crisps. You're just tucking and you're touching. You know, you're touching your friends' hands as they both go for the same. You both go for the same crisp, and you're not worried anymore because. That's the other thing that's happened to you that I know our listeners won't. You've had your first vaccine, so have I. So, you know, we're 60% of the way there to being completely COVID safe. COVID friendly, if anything, I think is the correct term. So you can... Exactly. COVID secure, yeah. COVID so you can secure. touch those hands as they go for your Thai sweet chilies. As, as Neil Diamond once said. Um, and I'll, I'll move on to something I don't like, James, which is uh, bad bike lanes. Bad bike lanes. So I was out on a ride on Saturday, went out nice and early. The roads were beautifully empty. Uh, I just wanted to do two hours, nice and fast. I planned out my route on my on my Wahoo, uh, but unfortunately there was a road closure, which diverted me onto the main road. Uh, you know, it was fine. It was it was pretty empty. But whenever I'm on a main road and there is a bike lane, I feel duty bound to enter it. Uh, this wasn't a segregated one. It was one of those ones that's kind of just painted onto the side of like a of a two-lane street, but I always feel duty-bound to go into it, just out of a respect thing. But I just, around me, most of my bike lanes are just covered in rubbish. They're just, yep. they are magnets for glass, trees, litter, um, and they're actually quite dangerous to ride into, I find. Uh, mm. So that's what I don't like, is, is, is poor bike lanes. Because then you sort of try to veer out into the road, and then you feel bad because... You're in the road despite there being a bike lane there and you feel like you're going to antagonise other road users by doing this. But what they don't know is that you're just, you know, I'm on a set of 25mm tyres that are quite, you know, sort of, they will puncture easily if I ride in those bike lanes. And yeah. I just don't like that. And I just think, one, road sweepers sweep the bike lanes as well. Don't just sweep the roads because that's half the problem is road sweepers pushing debris into the bike lane exactly that's what i suggest is it's a road sweeper sweeping it into the bike lane a little bit like you know sweeping the crumbs underneath the kitchen counter hoping no one's going to notice yeah exactly all you're going to do is attract rats yeah i know it all all punches in your expensive tires exactly so that that's that's annoying me but that's about it really so let's get on to the interview but before we kick off uh with mr liggett 
just want to say, and it's desperately annoying for us, as it probably will be for you, it's not our greatest sound recording. We did have some technical issues. We mercifully had a backup made by Phil. So thank you again, Phil, not just for coming on, but for being our sound engineer to be able to rectify it to a degree. So please stick with it. It is really great, but yeah, it's not going to be... It's it's not going to have the kind of acoustics of Carnegie Hall, put it that way. But hopefully it's serviceable. I was trying to be a professional living in Belgium, just outside of Ghent. And uh, I thought that cycling magazine or cycling and mopeds in those days wasn't giving a, a fair crack of the whip reporting the guys who were living in Belgium. And there's plenty of us, quite good riders, trying to make a living and be a pro. And Tom Simpson was the current world champion. And uh, I rang them up. I said, hey, what about these guys who are really working hard to make a living and riding all the top races? He said, oh, we haven't got the money for a reporter. Write a story every Sunday and tell us how they're all getting on. And uh, and the only way to do that, because I had no money out there, I was living hand to mouth, was to uh, go to St. Peter's Station in Ghent, where there was a little cafe opposite the entrance of the station. I borrowed the guy's phone put a reverse charge call into London, which took 90 minutes minimum to be returned to me. So I sat and drank his coffee or drank a beer. And then um, and then the call came through and I made a weekly report on the bike riders in Belgium. And they liked what I did. Uh, they, they, I can't even remember if they paid me, to be honest. But I certainly um, started to pick up and report Tommy Simpson's escapades in Belgium as well. And towards the end of that year, while I was back in the UK, thinking going back to sign the pro contract I got, and uh, the guy said, listen, there's a vacancy on cycling. Why don't you come for an interview? I didn't get the job, but I did three months later when the guy who got the job actually left. So mm. I cancelled my ambitions to be a pro and I became a journalist, um, which was uh, the only decision I've ever made in my life. Since then, I never asked for a job in television. I've always accepted when they're offered. Never asked for a job in radio, and life just has come to me, which I'm very grateful for. Was that when you first met Alan Gaither? Alan was my very first contact. He was the editor of Cycling and Mopeds, and he was a strict taskmaster, master, but he was a great guy. And in fact, because I had nowhere to live, and I just literally, because he rang me up on the Friday and said, hey, we're not doing more interviews. The guy's left. You've got the job. If you're at your desk, 8 o'clock in Fleet Street, Monday morning. This is Friday lunchtime, and I'm a northerner. I mean, northerners don't think much of the southerners, and still don't, I don't think so. And so I went home and said to my mum, I said, hey, I'm going to work in London. She said, what are you going down there for? I said, well, I've got this job to be a journalist in Fleet Street. I'm going. Okay. So I jumped in the car. In those days, there was no through motorways. So I slept in the car overnight on the way to the uh, Fleet Street. Taught the car in Fleet Street. You could in those days, not anymore. <laughs> and I was at my desk for 8 o'clock. And Gaper was the guy who was right behind me. He said, can I type? I said, no. He said, you've got 10 days to learn, otherwise I'll sack you. And he would have done. Have you got someone to live? I said, no. He said, come and stay with me until you find somewhere. I stayed with him for six weeks. That's the sort of guy he was. And we got on famously. And um and the rest is history, of course. I spent over three years working with them till I was offered the job of being the organiser of the British Milk Race, which I accepted. And during that time, I then became a freelance writer on cycling and also started to work for the Guardian newspaper as well. So 
life began in 1973. I started with my, I went to my first Tour de France. I've been going ever since. Wow, what a journey. And yeah, what um, what an incredible guy uh, Alan Gaffer sounds like. I mean, I'm not sure. Always wore a bow tie. And he invented yeah. this darn competition because, first of all, he said, now you realise you can't race anymore. I said, yeah. In my own mind saying, yeah, right. And so I didn't stop racing. So he called me over after a few weeks and said, you're still racing, aren't you? I said, yeah, I am. Because I was doing pretty well down there. I was getting lots of firsts and seconds and stuff in the road races. He said, well, look, we're getting lots of letters to the magazine saying, thank heavens you've employed a real cyclist on your staff. So he said, I'm not going to say anything right now, uh, but there's one condition. You ride only the biggest races of the weekend and you report them at the same time. I thought, wow. So he worked me to death. And he said, if you're ever late in the office on Sunday night, I'll sack you. Because that's when we work. Sunday night, right through to midnight, Back on the job, six in the morning to put the paper mm. to bed. And it was tough. And I was getting thinner and thinner and thinner. So I did race. I raced for probably three or four years. Uh, but I was so thin in the end, I just had to stop racing. I couldn't keep up. I was living on beans on toast and trying to ride the biggest races in the in the British calendar. Mm. Uh, but the guys were good. I, I would get in the breakaway in the, in the Star Trophy race. And there'd be like guys like Pete Matthews, who was then the British champion. He was a Liverpoolian like I was, really. And I'd, I'd be in the break and sit at the back and I was knackered. And the guys would come and say, get off the back and come and do some work. And I'd say, I'm, I can't, I'm knackered. And Pete would say, leave him alone. He's all right. He's carrying the weight of a typewriter in his back pocket. Now, he's all right. Just leave him where he is. He'll write the story. And Pete became my hero, actually, because he defended me. Because I, I really couldn't work. I was blown to work. <laughs> I was going to ask you, yeah, how that kind of sat with your um, fellow racers, you being you being the person documenting the fact that you might just be about to beat them or they might just be about to beat one another. Was there, uh, were they very candid with kind of how they let you know what, what they were thinking at the time during racing or were they very poker-faced? I never did go for the finish. If, I, if on, the, on the rare occasion I had even the chance to go for the finish, I wouldn't go. It wasn't fair. Um, but I was, I was there, and I, I wanted to see what was going on to write the story. But I was truly too knackered to do anything. These guys are full-time, and I was working. After those races, I'd drive maybe 200 miles to make sure I'm in the office on time, and then work till midnight. And sometimes I was so tired, I slept on the mailbags downstairs in the mail office. I remember one day at 5.30 in the morning, the cleaners coming in and screaming when the mailbag turned over because I was underneath it trying to get to sleep. And uh, I was upstairs <laughs> at 6.30, uh, reading all the news reports and laying out the pages for the paper to go to bed. So there were great times, and I made great friends. But, um, yeah, it had to stop. I couldn't keep that up. It was too, too much. I was thin as a rake. If it turned sideways, it would have fallen down the grid. <laughs> and then, it's famously, you, you, you were obviously a print journalist at what is now Cycling Weekly, but the story goes that you then got offered a job at the Milk Race, which was back then the, the premier pro race in the UK. And you became the, the um, sort of in charge of the Milk Race for a few years and then started working your way up as a UCI commissaire, right? You became the youngest UCI commissaire at one point. You're absolutely right. And what happened was um, the organiser of the Milk Race, a guy called Morris Cumberware, uh, I'd done reports on the race, obviously. I'd never been on the race. 
but I'd done reports uh, before the race to preview the, course, preview the courses and stuff. But I, ne I never went on the race. That was a plum job, believe me, to report the milk race when we worked on cycling. It went to somebody like Ken Evans, a gator might pop in and have a look. Um, but it wasn't for me, the rookie reporter. That was a, that was a plum job. However, um, over the course of the two or three years I was at cycling, Maurice Cumberworth suddenly took me out for dinner, lunch. And he popped up with this question. He said, ah, what are you going to do with your future? I said, what? He said, what are you going to do with your future? I said, well, I'm happy where I am. What future? He said, well, look, he said, I'm, I'm leaving the milk marketing board because I want to drive a car around the world before I'm too old. And I'm, so I'm ending my job as director of the milk race. And I want to put your name forward as the organizer. He just somehow assessed me over those years. He saw something in it. I wasn't sure I knew I had. All I'd ever organized in my life was a 10-mile time trial for the Birkenhead North End, of which I was a member. And that was years ago. And that was only a club event. And here I was being asked to organize the biggest bike race, not just in Britain at the time, but amongst the amateurs. It was the biggest bike race in the world. Our main rivals was the Berlin Prague Warsaw Race, the Peace Race. And so uh, I took the job. And I remember I missed the, I missed the interview because I, I got married to Trish. And I, I missed it by a day because I came home off my honeymoon after only two days away uh, to a phone call in the morning. I was in my suit going to go to the milk marketing board for the interview. And the phone rings. And it's the milk marketing board saying, where are you? I said, what do you mean? Where am I? I'm, I'm about to leave the house. It was yesterday. I said, what? I said, I was on my honeymoon. He said, yes, we know. Well, look, we're going to give you the job. Because the chairman came yesterday and you weren't here and we're not going to get him back again today. So you've got the job. That was it. I got the job. I, I put the phone down, looked at Trish and said, I'm the organiser of the milk race. What the hell do I do? And for the next three months, I did absolutely bloody nothing. I just continued to race my bike. I, I got all the maps on the floor of Great Britain. I looked where Brighton was. I looked where Blackpool was. They were the star points, and I designed my first milk race, which ran in 1972. And the very first stage I designed was from um, uh, Liverpool to Sheffield, I think. It certainly went to Sheffield. Very, very difficult route. But more than that, I broke boundaries by going deep into the cities rather than around them. And I got mm. the police on my side. South Yorkshire police were fantastic. The council was fantastic. And I said to the council, we'll never get these roads closed. And the council said, we will. And we finished in Norfolk Park. It was, and it was the middle, the middle of the race at that time. And it was a great success. So, so I was up and running. And the, the milk race became very, very dear to my heart. I got voted on to the International Organizers Association. So I sat next door to Felix Leviton, who was the organizer of the Tour de France. and very much God. And, uh, and I made my contacts in the UCI. I took the exams uh, supported by the marketing board and they felt it was important for the organiser to be a commissaire. I got great marks. It prompted me to say, I'm going to be the most experienced pensioner the world's ever known. Because I can do anything in cycling. I've done everything in cycling. And I think it's true. That's what I am. The most mm. experienced pensioner in the sport. So with that, with that experience, what makes a good multi-stage uh, stage, a multi-stage uh, multi event stage? When you're looking at the Tour de France, for example, this year's route, which ones stick out and for what reasons? What are you looking for as a commentator and also as an organiser? Because, I mean, are they two different things? Being a commentator versus being an organiser for what you'd like to see? 
yeah, commentators criticise the organisers, and the organisers think they've done the best race in the world. That's the difference. <laughs> uh, but as an organiser, well, we often read stories, usually written by the media, saying, uh, especially in my day, this course is suited for a British winner. I never design a course for a British winner. The cyclists, the riders choose uh, who wins the race. And mm. they look at the course, they decide where and when they, they turn the screw and they race. Uh, they make the event. Uh, you can have the most exciting flat race in the world, and very often the best stages are the shortest ones. The best stage I ever did in the milk race was 60 miles long through the North Yorkshire Moors. They went like shit off a shovel over 60 miles, and it was the most exciting race, and Bob Downs almost landed the win, which would have given the victory of the milk race. It was very exciting. So it's... Uh, it's a case of the riders make the race as far as I'm saying. That applies in everything we look at. Nowadays, we talk of queen stages and the riders choose those races to win the tour. If you look at any stage race now, um, a climber usually wins. Um, they will just choose to race on those days and defend on the others. It's a simple format these days. Mm. Not quite as exciting in my day where everybody went and hammered each other as best they could and hope they stood up at the end of the day. Um, and that's about it, really. I, I sat with my, my roots. I, I knew Britain better than most people because I had the privilege of driving all over Britain, including Scotland and Wales, of course. And the Tour of Britain was just that. I, I've no critique against the current Tour of Britain because it's a brilliant organisation. Uh, but it's like a load of spaghetti spread all over the world because money's more important now to run the world. Mm. It's not a Tour of Britain as such. Mm. But that's, that's not a criticism. That's the way the world is unfolding. But I used to love the milk race, and it, it got me well-known in Europe with all the people. And as you know, uh, David Saunders was my man, who was the speaker of the Tour of Britain with David, uh, tour of, my Tour of Britain, the milk race with David Duffield. And it was Dave Saunders who in 1972 said to me, how would I like to be his driver on the Tour de France in 73, as they were going to do a big show of it on ITV. The answer, of course, was a foregone conclusion. I was his driver. And five years later, in 1978, David got killed in the car, which I just handed to him before I got home. He was dead. It was tragic. I sat on the edge of my bath up in the bedroom and cried because I'd lost a real friend. Uh, and I certainly wasn't going to ask for his job, but ITV rang me. And that's why I've never asked for a job in television. They rang mm. me and said... David would have loved you to have been involved, but we didn't have the money for two of you. Now he would love you in his memory if you took the job. I took the job. And that was originally for, for World of Sport, wasn't it? So that was doing sort of short 20-minute segments. Yes, but they were planning on to expand the coverage of the tour, but on the tour itself, yes, every weekend we had a 20-minute slot. And, uh, and I used to get people like Sean Kelly and make him, please, please, Sean, do not leave the top of this mountain until we've recorded this interview because I had to wait for satellites. We had to sit in the position. Poor Sean, he just walked mountain, was freezing cold. I covered him and, and he waited until we got the green light from London. The satellite was up and I recorded interviews which went into that 20 minute show on the Saturday afternoon world of sport. But, but everybody was terrific. I mean, great memories they are. They were hard work, really hard mm. work. It's much easier to do everyday life take the cans off and go home at the end of the, the live coverage. And it is to compile a seven-day race into 20 minutes on a Saturday afternoon. Did you immediately feel comfortable as a commentator? Because obviously you started as, well, you started as a bike racer 
then by chance became written press and then by chance you're now commentating and did it as soon as you got behind the mic and did it just feel natural and it flow from you well people always tell told me i told great stories i mean when i was 17 standing in the club room of the new brighton cycling club and just talking to the lads this girl came up to me and says you don't half talk a lot you know you should be right you should write a book i said write a book what are you talking about i've written five books she saw something that i didn't see um and of course yeah it, it was a big shock when i you think because you know your sport you can do commentary it's not true because mm. you can't just say what you want to say it has to be a right time it has to be timed into the program and when you're doing live TV, you've got to make sure it makes sense because you've also got to know what the viewer's seeing as well as what you're thinking. And it's, it's not as easy as it sounds. And so I remember when I got the job, the head of sport, uh, John Bromley and his, and his Otto Brian uh, uh, McConaughey, he, uh, McConaughey said to me, he said, well, you're going you're gonna to learn the hard way when they, when they said you've got the job um, because we're doing 45 minutes live coverage uh, from Crystal Palace of this big bike race. I said, well, I know the bike race. I'm the organiser of it. I was. I'd brought 88 professionals, biggest field outside of a world champion ever to come to Britain. I had the Tour de France winner, Tevenet. I had the world champion, Jan Ras. And it was all there. And Jerry Kinnettman was with me. Everybody. I even brought Paul Sherwin. It was Paul Sherwin's first race as a pro uh, in, in the UK. And, uh, and all the big boys of the day, like Sid Barros, were taking part. And Barry Hogan came as well. So I was the organiser. And now I'm suddenly the TV commentator. So I had to downgrade and get somebody to stand in. But I was the one that put the thumbs out the window to start the race. And I was 100 feet up a tower. And so if I suffered from vertigo, I'd have never started my life as a commentator. Because I had to climb this ladder straight up a tower in, in the palace. And then when I got there, of course, finally, out of breath comes the floor producer, looks after you normally. And he just said, everything all right? I said, I have no idea. I've never done it before. He said, is it your first time? I said, yes. Oh, he said, well, let me quickly explain. He said, you've got two televisions here. We call them monitors. When the pictures are the same, you're live. If you want to cough, press the red button. If you want to swear, press the red button. Otherwise, they'll hear everything you say. I'll leave you to it. And that was, that was all I got. Um, I remember Dickie Davis, who was the brilliant Dickie yeah. Davis from World of Sport, who was an icon in sport on television, calling me privately on the landline, which I had by the monitors. And he said, hello, Dickie. He said, hello, Phil, Dickie Davis here. Well, Dickie Davis speaking to me. He said, listen, old son, always call you old son. He said, listen, old son, you know your sport, just remember why you got the job. I said, I really have no idea why I got the job. And, and that's what he said to me. He said, because they liked you, and I do not change when you go on television. Be exactly what you were like before the red light comes on. And, and that's the only word of advice I got. And it's the one word of advice I, I have always passed throughout my life. First of all, with Paul showing. I said, Paul, we chose you to work with me because we like you. Don't change when you start TV. And I always tell youngsters who come on for the first time exactly the same thing. I said, don't be frightened. When this light goes green, you're alive. Be yourself. That's all you got to be. And, the, and, and hit, the, hit the public with all your knowledge that you've got. That's still my idiom today. But how, how did that Crystal Palace commentary go? How was that 45 minutes for you? I did the, I did the call. I, I do remember saying, and now we have the world champion, Jerry Kinnettman. It was the world champion. Jerry Kinnettman breaking wind at the front. 
I thought, oh God, that's the end of me. Unless <laughs> <laughs> you really insult the world, you don't get the sack in television. So I kept my job. But when I climbed down from the pylon and the producer was down there, a wonderful guy called John Scrimminger. And John said to me, he said, how do you think you went? I said, John, I've no idea. All right, well, we'll have, a, we'll have a talk in the week. I thought it was crap. But to be honest, I thought it was pretty bad. Now, mm. I was, wasn't disastrous, disastrously bad. I didn't get my facts and figures wrong. But it wasn't as easy as I thought. I'm looking at the monitor. The rides are passing in front of me 100 feet below, but I, I'm looking at the monitor. And that's what I do to this day, even when I'm on the finish line of the Tour de France. I don't look out the window because you're not seeing those pictures. So I've got to talk to the public. So I keep my eyes on the monitor. And um, it's always worked. Did you ever study other commentators? Did you ever sort of watch Bill Murray doing Six Nations or Brian Moore talking through a World Cup and try and cherry pick or sort of go, I like how he does this or he likes that? Or as a commentator, do you just need to be Phil Liggett and there? So though you can't really take little hints, because I remember Clive Tailsley, obviously famously does ITV's Champions League football, and saying that he learnt so much from just Brian, like sitting with Brian Moore, and and that that really made him become the commentator he is today. Did you do similar? No, I didn't actually. I sat by David Saunders for the five years before I got the mm. job because that was best season I have to watch the race. Um, mm. I didn't have any input, but obviously I listened to David's commentary. Um, but no, I never did. I'm a, I mean, I, they call me the voice of cycling. I didn't know I had a voice that was any different to anybody else's voice. But then the Americans suddenly went berserk and everybody wanted to use me, the same in Australia, etc. And uh, that's how I've come to work around the world. But as far as the uh, learning, I didn't know it's me. It's all me. Although I've, I know these guys, well, most of them have passed on sadly now, but um, Murray Walker was a particular person. I loved listening to his commentary. Yes, he made mistakes, but he made the sport really exciting on television. Mm. And, and remember, when you're doing a national TV, uh, you're talking to a, a big audience who is not cycling motivated. I used to say to Paul Sherwin, I said, Paul, we, we're, we do what we call the world feed as well as our direct commentary to ITV as it was then and also to NBC. All the rest of the world, South Africa, Canada, New Zealand, Star Television in Asia, could all hear our commentary. He said, what you've got to remember, we're probably talking to 150 million people. And you're not telling me they're cyclists because it would be lucky to hit 2 million cyclists out of all of them. So I said, listen, the, the, the cyclists can turn the sound off. And still work out what's going on. But the old lady can't, who's watching the TV for pleasure. And you've got to give her the pleasure of not just boringly tell her that this guy's riding a 4228 gear set today, uh, because you wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. Sure, I, I just enjoy doing what I do, and I, I love entertaining people. I mean, when we perform, I used to do talks around the world at theatres. We filled the house up just telling stories. That's all we did. Paul used to walk down the aisle with me, when they're applauding, saying, what are we talking about? I say, I have no idea. But it'll work out all right when we get on the stage. <laughs> That's how we did it. That's how we did it. So uh, I shall hasten, uh, I shan't call my mother old on this podcast, but she would definitely admit to not being um, a fan of, of pro cycling per se. So how would you explain the Tour de France to her? 
my best judge was the lady that used to live in the, in the cottage next door to my house here. Um, her name was Peggy. She was a wonderful sports lady. She had a brilliant job in life. She was PA to the chairman of Shell. Uh, then, of course, I got was age corporate. She passed away at 91. But during those 10 years before she passed away, she watched everything on television. And I used to bring uh, sports presenters to the house just to meet her. And she'd drill them with the information about golf and tennis, which she was a very good golfer, very good tennis player at the time. But she said, I, you know, Phil, I can't understand the bloody word on that sport of cycling. I said, well, I'm doing my best, Peggy. And you've got to watch it. It's just a bloody bunch of cyclists going all around the countryside together. I said, yes, but they're like computers. They're thinking how they're going to beat each other. And, it, and I sort of got this out. And so she gave up in the end. She started watching it. And, and then, uh, then she really put me down. And she said, oh, and by the way, Phil, I think you're much better looking on the television than you are in real life. I said, well, that makes me feel really good, Peggy, now. Uh, I'll get back on telly. Uh, so I won her over in the end, but I, I respected her comments because she was a real uh, a real sports fanatic. She really was. Oh, amazing. What was, Peggy, what was Peggy's favourite team by the end of it? Favourite rider? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I doubt she could even pronounce them. But <laughs> she gave me the honour of watching the show. <laughs> Your sort of comment on how you have to commentate for the, the layman, for the non-cyclist, rings true to me because... My first memory of the sport was 2007. The Tour de France visited the UK in London and the race, the Grand Depart, passed the end of my street. And that was my first ever experience of cycling. And I remember the, the peloton coming up the hill and I didn't understand what was happening. And I didn't understand why Dave Miller was on his own ahead of the other 190 riders. And I just couldn't get my head around it. And I ran home with my inflatable T-Mobile jersey that I'd got from the caravan. And then I had you and Paul explain the race to me. You had, you spoke, you sort of explained why there was people out in front, what was happening, why there was going to be a sprint. And then four years later, when I really got into cycling, the 2011 tour, which is, I'd say, the first one I really followed, again, you and Paul explained to me the ins and outs of cycling and why riders are ahead and why certain riders couldn't perform on certain stages. And, and and you have to do that every year and you have done that every year for 50 years now. And does that, does it ever get boring to you or do you relish every year in a couple of weeks you're going to be tuning into the tour and you've got a chance to explain this magnificent race to a host of new people again? Yeah, I, I do. Um, largely now I only work for American television because it, mm. the, the sport just simply got too big that we had to bring more commentators in for the world. And, of course, ITV wanted me to work full-time just for them, and that wasn't possible. It was a contract situation. So ITV have also gone away with their own team now. So I'm strictly into America. And I think it's the Americans who, going back to when CBS started using me on the Tour de France and making this terrific film. There was It was a film about the Tour de France every year. And many of the stages, we never even told you who won the stage. We only followed the life of the guy that may be winning the stage. Mm. Money wasn't an object, so we had terrific effects as well. And Americans taught me, because the Americans said, nobody in America understands this goddamn game, so you're going to have to tell them how to do it. And so that's why I became much more explicit. Because like everybody, I was a cyclist. And I thought everybody wanted to know about cycling. It's not so. People want to... 
and it was sort of Paul and I who brought in talking about the castles, uh, which took off, just went out of sight. Paul became the, the definitive person to talk about castles and the Chateau of France because we did it the first time as a joke. I mean, a castle goes through and there's no roof on it. And I said, this one's in need of a bit of renovation, Paul. And he would go, yeah, well, Phil, he said, well, Louis XIV lived here in the 15th century, 14th century. And I was just looking across at him. How did you know that? Well, I couldn't talk to him because we were alive. I said, how did you know that? Oh, he says, well, I didn't really. He said, but Louis XIV lived in most chateaus in France. <laughs> so, that also, and then people started writing in saying, we read about the country. Paul knew France. He lived there 10 years. He raced 10 years there. Paul knew every little... And we talked about the coffee shops on the corners where he'd been in, or the bakery in, on the Le Grand Bournon in the Alps. And, and, and he would, we'd drive past him and he'd say, is there a big fat guy still serving the meat there? Because I used to go out with his daughter. And if he's there, keep going. So we worked them all into the commentary some way or other, and people started to get to enjoy... France. A lot of our letters before the tour, not now so much, but in the old days, used to be, please tell us the route of the tour. Um, we're not watching, we're not interested in the cycling, but we want to go where the cyclists go because they're the best roads in France, which is true. Yeah, we well, know. I think it's a matter of educating people, but gently, because we want them to enjoy the show. Um, and I owe a lot to American television for that, because CBS, they, they took me to my first Winter Olympics in 1992. And I finished up doing ski jumping. But when they rang up, my, my wife, Trish, she was an Olympic speed skater on ice in 1968. And so I thought they'd rang me up to commentate on speed skating. I'd done the World Championships in Peterborough a while back. Uh, and I, they said, no, nah, no, nah, we've got Eric Hyden for that. Well, I thought he was a bit better than me. I knew Eric too. And so uh, they said, uh, we want to give you biathlon. I said, okay. Um, I know nothing about biathlon. They said, that's all right. You can learn with the American public because they know nothing about it either. And that's how <laughs> I did in the Winter Olympics. And I didn't do biathlon in the end. I did ski jumping because they, they, I, the guy that was doing ski jumping couldn't make it with a contractual problem. So they said, you've got to do ski jumping as well. I said, I've never done any research on ski. Just do it. We need you. And so I did ski jumping. And the result was they thought it was better than my biathlon commentary. So I finished up uh, ski jumping for the next few Winter Olympics. And, uh, and then after that, they brought me into doing triathlons and, and the summer sports, triathlons and other sports, opening ceremonies for Australian TV and stuff like that. Just caught on. Just say what you see. Like catchphrase on television. Say what you see. Yeah. Well, that's, that I'm sure, you know, that's, that's, that's got to be a big part of it. But how, I often wonder how much homework do you have to do? And are you kind of, are you waiting for a bus and something, a little simile pops into your head and you think, I'm going to write that down, I'm going to use that? Not usually when I'm waiting for a bus because I never go on them. But on the bike, yes. On the bike, your mind's always working. Mm. Even though I'm going along through the lovely countryside, especially with the weather like it is now. And you suddenly think, I've got to remember that. I've got to remember that till I get home. Because when you get home, your mind usually goes blank again. Uh, I used to write all my speeches on the bike and keep the lines I wanted at the top of my speeches. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I've, I've enjoyed remembering all of these things. Um, but if I get a good line, see, people talk about my ligatism. Mm -hmm. I didn't dream of writing ligatism. I just would look at a picture. I remember one I wrote on Paris Bay once, and 
and the riders are now riding down this roller coaster of pain. And I just said it. And everybody goes, man, that's mad and berserk. And thinks it's wonderful. And dancing on the pedals. Now I see all the commentators on Eurovision using my dancing on the pedals. And the Manx Missile. That was me that invented the Manx Missile. Now they're all using my commentary. I take that as a compliment, actually. I was going to say, have you looked into trademarking any of these things? So every time someone says it, there's another 10 pence in Phil Liggett's bank account. Uh, no, no. Fortunately, I've, I've never really considered money, although I've got plenty of it. Is there anything that you, that's just popped out of your mouth and you're just like, Wow, that just that just sounded very weird. <laughs> that didn't make sense. Not really that's made me bite my lip because, you know, the thing about live television, you get the feeling in your stomach like you used to get on the start line of big bite race. You're nervous. And if you're not nervous, you've got a problem uh, because when uh, the producer shouts, cute, you've got to go. And I am um, most times don't know what I'm going to say. CBS once sent uh, the... the PA over to me, personal assistant, come across and say, um, Mr. Liggett, I need to ask you what your first words will be when we go live. And I'd say, well, I've no idea. It'll probably be a low. And she looked all completely <laughs> confused. And then in my earpiece, I heard, and she had the earpiece as well, I heard the producer say, just leave him alone. He's a Brit. So they <laughs> never asked me again. Because uh, as long as you get your order right, and you want to give a good, powerful opening, which those words are running around in the mind. For example, at the start of the Tour de France, only just a week away as we speak, um, I will know what pictures are going to come. The first thing I will see when the studio hands to me, uh, and I'll be ready for it. And as we've alluded to uh, throughout this conversation, is every great commentator has a great co-commentator, and, and for you it was the late, great Paul Sherwin who... Um, I believe another thing I read before this interview is that he was immensely proud that you had the longest ever commentary partnership of any sport. And 33 years of sitting next to the same person and explaining this sport to millions around the world. And it's worth noting, you you were the one who courted Paul, weren't you? Because quite often now with co-commentators, it feels like they've been sort of jetted in because they've just retired. But it was you who went after Paul, right? It was. Um, I read in a British uh, newspaper, it might have been Cycling Weekly, I don't know, that Paul was retiring at the end of the season in 85, 1986. Never get the date right. And so I was on Paris-Nice. It was a split stage, as it usually was in those days. You race on to the Pont Anglais, and then you race up the Col for a final time trial in the afternoon. I never went up the hill for the cold airs because my train left Nice at quarter to seven and I had to put my car on the train in advance for bringing it back to Calais, you see. So I uh, I ran out, watched the finish of the sprint. Paul was up there, he's a good sprinter. I went up and I said, hey, Paul, are you retiring? He looked at me, he goes, yeah. I said, well, it's only a thought because I've got no powers, but... Would you like it if I could make it happen for you to work with me as a commentator? Um, and he looked at me, he goes, yeah, I'll give it a go. That was Paul. Oh, and we made we consolidated our friendship over 10 years of reporting anyway. And I knew what he was like. Because uh, he used to go to the start line of the Tour de France every day. And in those days, he just had a food truck for the riders, not like we've got now. And he would always go up and get me half a grapefruit and bring it to me for my breakfast. 
because if anybody other than a rider went to that food truck, you were kicked off the tour. Food stricken for the riders. Anyway, he used to sneak me a half a grapefruit. So I said, well, look, I'll, I'm going to tell the people that matter and we'll see what happens. Well, during the year, uh, ITV was changing the direction. ITV4 was soon to begin. And uh, made great friends with Adrian Metcalf, who became, by absolute coincidence, the commissioning editor for ITV4, the sport. And so the, the time had opened up for Paul Sheridan. And Paul took the job. But at the same time, he was doing his last two years as a pro. So during that conversation, I just said, he said I was racing, he was going to race back in Great Britain for the two, last two years, but he couldn't tell me who for. I said, okay. Uh, I said, well, whoever it is, Paul, write into your contract, you don't race in the month of July. So that if anything happens, you can be alongside me in the other car. During the, towards the end of that year, um, I had a phone call from George Shaw, who was the man from T.I. Rally. And he says, hello, Bill, it's George here. I said, hi, George. George's a lovely guy. And I said, uh, he said, listen, I've got this very strange request from Paul Sherwin. I said, it's you then who sponsors him, is it? Uh, yeah, he said, yeah, yeah. He says, but it says he can't race in July. <laughs> and I said, I told him, George, whoever it was uh, to do that, because we want to bring him on to television. And I'm sure we can wear a little polo neck with T.I. Rally on. It won't be a problem on ITV. Uh, but um, Paul's got to think of his future after, after life with you as a pro. Oh, it's great, he says. Just wanted to know why he did it. It's fine. No worries. And George allowed Paul on. And we put the polo neck. And also, it went even better for Rally because Paul uh, trained on the tour between the hotels. And then we put him in the races like the Tour of Britain in his rally jersey. Rally Banana was the team then. And um, we mic Paul up. And so we spoke to Paul commentary-wise. And how the hell Paul rode in the, the peloton, uh, you know, the top pro race at the top bike rides of the day after his three weeks on the Tour beat me. But he struggled and he did speak to us, but boy, he was out of breath. But I'll tell you, that guy was special in doing that. And it, and it brought the new concept of how we produced TV, sport on TV as well. So very special. Did, did you know immediately that he was going to be a great co-commentator? Did you, was there never a worry that he was just going to be as natural as he was? He, he completely mirrored my life. That's why I liked him. Because we lived only 12 miles apart. He comes from uh, Widnes, where he was brought up. And he lived in Frodsham, which I used to ride through Frodsham throughout my training career. All right, I knew his roads inside out. We were just 12 years apart in age. And so uh, we had the same humour. And we really did. And to the day he passed away, we had the same humour. And we kept our OB alive with our stories and jokes. And life was to be enjoyed. Cycling's a game. Um, I wasn't going to bring any pressure on anybody. So when we got Paul on the screen, I gave him that same tip I got. I said, Paul, the only thing I got ever told was, be yourself. And that's all you've got to do. Follow my lead. Don't speak when I speak. Mm. I'm well. And, you know, we never, ever talked over each other. I used to squeeze his knee and he'd start talking. Or he'd put his finger up and I'd stop talking. And he'd start talking. And um, in 1989, when he called the time trial, Gregor for winning the Tour de France by eight seconds, it was his best comedy ever done. He only just started three or four years into the chair. 
And I told him to resign. I said, you'll never get me better. He did a brilliant comedy that day. Had it worked out to the second. And, uh, and we got on really well. We became a, a real team. Not, and we did things together. And we, there was no rehearsal for us. We used to walk out the doors of the hotel rooms at the same time, because we did. We used to go to the restaurant together. And people used to say, where's your mate? Whichever one it was. And people called me Paul, Paul Phil. Happened all the time. Uh, and we didn't care. Paul would come back in laughing to They just call me Phil again. And I said, well, don't worry. They called me Paul this morning. And that's, we just got on like that. It was a perfect partnership. In 33 years, it lasted. And you're right. But Paul was very proud of the fact it was the longest running sports comedy duo in any sport. And how, I mean, if it's not an insensitive question, how do you bounce back from that? Because that is your partner in crime. It was. And people were expecting me to completely collapse. Any thoughts I had of stopping were immediately cancelled in my mind because the, all they would say is, we did that because Paul died. Uh, that was definitely a non-starter. Paul and I didn't just do comedy together. We went on safari together. We had the same love of animals. And we all working um, conservation-wise with animals in Uganda and in Africa, South Africa. And so... Um, it was tough, but people, I, I, I read all the press comments about, you know, Phil Liggett's never going to recover from this. Uh, he's going to be a lost soul around the Tour de France. As my wife says, I can shut things out very easily out of my mind and move on. Um, I think when you work in television, it makes you a very hard person. You can be commentating live and you get the producer screaming and swearing at you. And you just got to dismiss it. Paul was very, very... Um, impressionable and I kept saying Paul, these guys when they shout at you aren't even seeing you they just want what they want done so don't even think about it uh, and I got him, pulled him around a few times like that. and so I find that the, I felt more sorry for Bob Rowe who was to become in Paul's chair and he would be the first guy to sit on my left for 33 years other than Paul Sherwin I felt more sorry for Bob because the viewers were going to compare him. Mm. It can't, it's nothing to do with comparing. Paul was no longer with us. We had a job to do. I had to set it up and I had to make Bob feel warm and welcome. It was easier because Bob was actually a great friend with Sherwin. And Sherwin, by the way, we always called each other Sherwin and Liggett. We never called each other Paul and Bob. And so Sherwin was always, you know, enjoying Bob's. Uh, life away when we used to go out for dinner at night wherever we were and so uh, I was one of the guys uh, behind suggesting Bob should be alongside me not because I particularly wanted Bob but because I knew he would do a great job mm. and Paul would have loved his appointment and that's the way it worked out so it's not easy but life goes on I, I've, I've got a documentary which is just about to be released in the UK yeah. in July and I, I see somebody quoted in it, but I had no, nothing to do with the input. Somebody saying, Phil, Phil doesn't seem the same now that he's wandering around without Paul. I know what they're really saying is that we're no longer together because we walk everywhere together, without exception. We used to go to the P together. We would go back to the commentary together. We would go in the same car every day. We'd eat together. That's what we did. We never got tired of each other's company. And we'd invite people to join us, but we would never go separately anywhere. We didn't do it. So I can understand the saying he looks lonely, because I was. I was walking around by my bloody self. But I wasn't feeling any sadness inside. Um, all my morning was personal. 
and all my memories you can never take away. In death, you never lose your great memories, and that's that was very important to me. So with those memories, what do you think sticks out as like the best Tour de France that you had with Paul? Oh dear. Well, as I say, I think we, we made a fantastic job. Paul became of age as a commentator in 89. We call that race perfectly. It wasn't just the last day. That was a brilliant Tour de France. The yellow jersey was thrown around between Fignon and Le Mans. Every time Fignon won the stage, Le Mans won the stage and vice versa. Um, it was just a brilliant storytelling tour. And, um, and we just lived it. And we finished up with a crescendo like that. And all lying around my feet. Le Mans screaming with his wife, Cathy, on my left. I was among them. And Fignon crying on the floor, killed up like a fetus. And, and me saying, I don't believe this. But Greg Le Mans has won the tour by eight seconds. And early at the start of the show, I'd said Le Mans would win by six. So the producer in London put the key across and said, next time, Liggett, get it bloody white. And that was it. <laughs> I cracked. I cried. I couldn't do anything about it. Um, it was a bizarre scene and it was wonderful. And next day, going home on the boat, back to London, back to uh, Dover from Dover, uh, I said to Paul, I said, Paul, you've got my advice. Write your resignation. You're not going to get any better than this and enjoy the rest of your life. And we also sent a great letter to the organiser of the tour saying, don't ever hold another last day time trial. You'll never repeat this. And I don't think he took that advice, but we've never had a last day time trial ever since. <laughs> in that, in those sort of 50 years of covering the tour as such, has what's been the most impressive performance you've seen? So not so much the race. Was there one sort of rider that really stuck out to you and you just were sort of mesmerised by or just so enamoured with? Injurain was, was a fantastic time trialist and he was an absolute gentleman. We always celebrated his birthday and it was the 19th of July with a big cake which he just threw the candles out because he wouldn't eat the cake. Um, I liked him as a cyclist. He's a bit boring as a man, but I liked that when he was when he lost his five straight tours and then he, then he lost, that guy became a hero to me because that, that year that tour went straight past his house and they grandstand mm. outside near Pamplona. And he was beaten, already beaten by Bjorn Aris. Yeah. So um, he still plodded on. And I, I, I was absolutely certain this is it. He, he's home. Why does he need to ride to Paris over the last few days? But he did because he was Miguel Indian. And he continued his journey to Paris. And he became a hero then to me. And, and he's, he's still to this day very quiet. Always smart, always a presence you can feel, but not like you were. He sat by me in Dublin during the Tour de France starting in 98 in Dublin. I didn't even know he'd sat down. I, I just typed him away, look at him. Oh, hello, Miguel. Because this guy never advertised. He was just a character. Whereas if Eddie Merckx ever walked in the room, a presence has arrived. And mm. Eddie was my hero anyway, and I know Eddie very well now. We've been around the world together on numerous occasions uh, doing talks. And Eddie's, Eddie was, without doubt, the finest cyclist ever, ever ridden and most humble person you'll ever meet and just a really, really nice person. He wasn't when I raced against him in 60. I, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. As I told him at the time, well, not then, Eddie was so good and I couldn't get near him uh, that I chose not to take that pro contract. That was mm -hmm. it. It was because of Eddie and I told him. Oh, years on, 20 years on, when I was at his house in Brussels at his factory, doing a story on him. 
And I sat down and said, Eddie, do you realise you're the, my reason for not turning pro? Because I couldn't beat you. And Eddie just looked at me from foot to head and he said, you beat me. That was it. I said, no, I couldn't. So I never turned pro. It was your fault. <laughs> but speaking of with sort of Eddie, of obviously Merckx is the greatest rider of all time, but and you've seen so many great riders come and go. This current crop of riders that we're seeing now in Tajek Pogacar, people like Matteo van der Poel, Egan Bernal, are you are you sort of witnessing? Do you think we're witnessing a golden generation? Like a, it does feel like we're entering a bit of a special time for the sport in terms of performance and and spectacle. For me, it's the new beginning. Now we've gone through the dope era. I really believe it. And these guys aren't taking drugs. We've gone through it, and I'm, the, and the racing this year has been sensational. I've never watched so much cycling. I'll be honest, because I've never been home so long. I've watched everything mm. television's thrown at us, uh, mainly thanks to Eurosport. And um, I've been watching these kids come through. And now there's much more aggressive racing. Guys are jumping off the front of the peloton a kilometer to go and holding it to the line. And this mm. is because now there's a whole lot of new mechanism in there now. Uh, teams are trying to control, yes. And Ineos are, have had a fantastic season. But although they appear to have dominated the results, it's been a very different team, Ineos. This hasn't been boringly shutting down the action. This has been great bike racing. And there have been lots of guys want to attack and give it a go and find out. That's why we had so many first-time riders in the Giro win stages mm. and not afraid to go and give it a shot. And the, we talked of the changing of the guard coming now for five years, but it's here now. Mm. And, um, and the likes of Nibali, I think, uh, personifying the situation that um, it may be time to retire if you're over the age of 32, 33. And that, for that reason, too, sadly, I don't see Chris Kroon uh, coming back to the one who was. So, so in, in that sort of vein, we're obviously a week away from the tour. Who, who would you say is the? Would you say Pogacar's the outright favourite to defend, or, or do you? Can you see a sort of upset? Because I feel like anyone else winning could be con- conceived as an upset at the moment. Yes, it would be. Pogacar's obviously the hot favourite, and the team itself has got so many guys they can fall back on. It happened in the in the Dauphiné where Geraint Thomas looked to be the winner, but in the end, Port had to take the reins and win. Um, and I, I, I admire the team immensely, but there's there could be some room for a surprise winner. Primoz Roglic has disappeared for playing with altitude and stuff, and he'll come back and ride the tour. To gamble whether it could be a mistake just coming straight back in the tour, we'll find out. The tour routes are good routes, but there's stacks of room for surprise. Evan mm. Apoel, who's just won the Tour of Belgium, um, he, he he won't come to the Tour, I don't think, now. But there's other young guys will be there for the first time. And they're full of enthusiasm. They want to succeed. They're not afraid to attack. Um, and we've got one or two good teams can offer a challenge. Mm. I think we'll have a great Tour in many, many ways. There'll be lots of stories. Uh, first nine days are not going to be too much of a challenge. You know, chance to reshape, yes, but it is possible for a sprinter to run all the way to the first rest day. Uh, the challenge over Mont Ventoux, I always take my hat off to the Tour de France because every year, despite having done this for, uh, since 1903, I seem to find something new every year. Mm. And now we're going down the Ventoux, I can't believe it. Uh, I, just, I just find this amazing. It's going to be a terrific uh, tour, I'm sure. That it always is. And there's always a story to tell. It'll be my 49th as well, so. Yeah. 
I can hear all of wow. you. Get out. Get off. Too well. <laughs> so, uh, so if Peggy was still around, or if you're talking to my mum, which stages are you telling them to watch? Well, obviously, um, I'm going to watch with interest the opening days. Brittany is one of my favourite parts of France. The racing will be good and furious. And if Mark Cavendish gets a ride, which I'm not so sure he will, uh, I'd love to see him in the mix. Everything that'd be fabulous because I like Mark very much. He's a straight talking scouser, even though he comes from the Island Man. And, um, and I haven't really looked at the route, I'll be honest. I, I feel like long from one, I never used to look at the route until the eve of the tour. But um, I am, I'm looking at it just about now because today I start my round of talking to every team on the Tour de France and I've got a team today and that must look a really good, I can't remember. We talk to every director sportif over the next week to find out the riders and what they expect from the teams. So if you've asked this question next week, I'd have all the answers to it. <laughs> um, you know, one, two is obviously a highlight, um, but we have a nice yeah. through the Pyrenees, as always, and through the Alpine Um And we finish back on the Saturday, say, after the time trial. It's, uh, we'll see how it develops. As I said earlier, um, the riders choose the route, mm. not the organisers. They choose when to attack, and they choose when to make it exciting. Uh, and the first nine days are worrying for all of the potential protagonists in Paris because crashes must be avoided, brakes must not be let go if they're dangerous, so you've got to rely heavily on your team, keeping good control. In the of the Masters, but watch out for Jumbo Visma. And there's other teams now, Star, for example. Let's shape it up lovely this year. And I'd love Cofferty's to win a stage. They haven't won one since 2008. Let's win the stage, lads. But it, it will be. It will continue to be a busy summer for you as well, because after the Tour de France, pushing into August, you're also going to be commentating on the Collins Cup, which is a new event in triathlon. So, is that the first time you've commentated on triathlon, or is that? You know, you've done biathlon a little bit. You've done ski jumping. Triathlon's obviously, you know, that, that was done back in nine, the 1980s. Come on, James. It's already been done. After the tour, I've got three days to transfer to doing the Olympic Games. But all of this is in London. I'm going nowhere. I should be in Melbourne for the Olympics. I should be in France for the tour. No, it's all in London. And then finally, nearly 18 months after I was last away from Heathrow Airport, I should be in Slovakia for the Collins Cup. Now, the Collins Cup, as you may know, has um, it's been mooted since 2016. We haven't had it on yet. This will be the inaugural one on the 28th of August. Um, in answer to your first question, no, I used to do the World Ironman Championship. I did it a few times for, for um, ABC, I think it was, and then NBC in the States. And I was in Hawaii. What a great place that is. And, I, and I've been over there with Greg Lamont and ridden a bike in Hawaii with him as well. But uh, the sport was never in existence, of course, in my athletic career. And if it had been, I wouldn't have taken part because I can't swim. To this day, I don't swim. So I wouldn't do much good. But I called it the Olympic Games. It's a much more slim down there. It's not an Ironman. Now, the Collins Cup is a half Ironman. And the idea of the Collins Cup is to make it really watchable on television. So they've made a lot of effort to bring in a top commentary team. There's eight of us. They've kindly announced me as being the anchor. I don't know what that means, but I can't swim. But uh, <laughs> I can tell you that we are going to see a fantastic competition. There we go, ladies and gentlemen, dear listeners of the Cyclist Pod, Mr. Phil Liggett, the voice of cycling himself, 
lovely guest, lovely man who was very gracious, very kind to share his time with us, wasn't he, James? And told us some lovely stories as well, just ahead of the Tour de France. Very nice, very nice dude. You know, I mean, yeah, he's 77. He's in. He's sharp as a tack. I mean, that sounds desperately disparaging. Not that he shouldn't be, but like, as in, he's still just like smashing at the, he's at the sharpest end of his trade at, at an age where most people would hope to be retired. And I really rate, I respect that a lot. Uh, and even more so, um, and he was very good of him to sort of like really address it head on because you could see it meant a lot to him. Um, going through the situation where effectively you lost your best mate, your best colleague, and one of the people that you may have spent some of the most time with beyond your actual family yeah. for 33 years. Uh, so losing um, Paul Sherwin was, you know, it was difficult for, um, you know, just the fans of the sport wasn't wasn't a nice thing at all. Um, but f- to keep going as the person who you know was around him most is uh, yeah admirable. Yeah, it's definitely. Um, it's worth noting actually. I I, I I didn't mention this in the pod, but I once uh, saw Paul Sherwin on a piano ferry. Oh really? Coming back from Paru Bay in 2017. So I went and watched it. I went over on the ferry, went and watched the, the race. And sort of coming home the same evening, and he was on that ferry. And the, you know what I always remember from him? He was in a pair of shorts. Is that he has the most? His legs are. He was seventy four at the time. This was like four years ago. He's always got shaven legs, and he had like perfectly tanned, like almost professional level size, like like legs. I was just so like that's. I just remember looking at him then, like you're seventy four, whatever, and you look incredible. <laughs> Yeah, no, th- no. I was going to mention this um, in the in the pod. Like, there, there's quite a few pictures I've seen scattered around Tinterweb um, of them, uh, either Paul or Phil, or sometimes together, wearing blazers and ties, and then just wearing cargo shorts from so from the top up, which is where they're getting filmed. This is what they're doing back in the '90s, where things were a bit stuffier. They're just there looking very presentable, a little bit like their cricket umpires. And then from the waist down, they're just wearing like white baggies and some like dodgy sandals. But yeah, they've got incredible legs, the pair of them. Like fair play. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is great to get that kind of um, insight though from somebody that's been doing it for so long. An interesting, well, maybe not that interesting really, that his greatest moment was, you know, the 1989 Tour de France, which I think Come to, that comes set, up a lot on this pod. It does, doesn't it? That settles that debate. You know, was the 2020 um, Tour de France as exciting as ni- 1989? And I think if Phil says it wasn't, it wasn't. I might agree with you there, James. But that doesn't mean that the 2021 Tour de France isn't going to be any less exciting, which is starting this weekend. Um, Phil's looking forward to it. Uh, obviously, when we recorded with him was obviously a week ago in the world of podcasting. Not to get you, your dates confused, but... Uh, but we're, you know, we're on the eve of the tour now, uh, and we're very much looking forward to it, James. Um, and I just wanted to know if you've got any sort of predictions, any Mystic Meg premonitions about this year's tour that you're going to make. Beyond the obvious, um, I'm going to say that Quick Step are going to take Cav, right? And I'm going to say he's going to get, he's going to get a stage, right? Okay. He's going to be a 36 year old. I'm not, I think he's still going to be 36. He's going to be a 36 year old sprinter, stage winner at the tour. Brian Holm's going to be proved right. Brian Holm will, that will elicit a string of very um, uh, exci- over-excitable, broken Swedish, very sweary Instagram posts from Brian Holm, probably declaring that Cav is still a fat pig, but he loves him. Um, which isn't, uh, sorry if anyone's listening to this and thinking, what, that's an awful thing to say about Cav. That is a direct quote. <laughs> but it's meant, <laughs> he says it, very he says it endear- <laughs> Yeah, he says it, it very endearingly. So yeah, that's my outside uh, big baller bet is Cav, the Manx missile, to be taken 
get a ride and to win a stage. How about you? Well, I'm going to go out there on a limb, James. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, uh, digital editor of Cycling Magazine, Joe Robinson's predictions for the top 10 of this year's Tour de France. And now I'm going to caveat this with, we are recording this a little bit ahead of time. So if any of these riders have, you know, suffered a fate of, you know, illness or injury before the Tour, that's my bad. But this is, as of, you know, a week before the Grand Depart, what I believe the top 10 will be in Paris uh, come the end of, well, mid-July. So I'm going to read this as if I was uh, like in Top of the Pops. Is that all right, James? All right. In at number 10, fresh off of a podium at the Giro d'Italia, that's right, it's Mr. Simon Yates. Coming in at number 9, he's making his debut at the Tour de France, but that doesn't mean he doesn't know how to ride a grand tour. It's Theo Gegenhart. Number 8, they see him here, they see him there. It's Nairo Man, Nairo Quintana. In at number seven, I don't have anything funny to say about this man, but it's Wilco Kilderman. I can't keep doing this bit. Keep going. In at number six, the man who looks like Anne Hathaway is Enrique Mass. <laughs> In at number five, it's the Superman, Miguel Angel Lopez. In at number four, it's the third Ineos rider of this list, it's Richard Carapaz. <laughs> <laughs> In at number three, you may or may not know that this man was a ski jumper, but if you didn't, you now do. It's Primoz Roglic. <laughs> in at number two, it's a man from Wales who's won the Tour de France previously, but he's not going to win it this year. It's Geraint Thomas. <laughs> and in at number one, it's the defending champion and the phenomenal rider himself, Tajek Pogacar. <laughs> there you go. There's my top ten. There's the top ten. That's how it's going to finish. So G's going to be second po- second spot podium, right? Yeah, I think I think Ineos going with uh, four leaders. I don't think Richie Port's going to get in the top ten. Richie Port's going to crash out. That's the other thing I predict. <laughs> Richie Port, he he had his one year of no incidents last year when he got the podium. Like, don't get me wrong, Richie's a great rider, great guy, but I think uh, I, I just can't see him finishing the top ten this year. I think they're going with Thomas Carapaz, Gegenhart, and Port as kind of a leadership quartet, mm-hmm. um, and I just feel like one of them will miss out, and it'll be him. Yeah. Um, and I think he understands that he's at that. He's ultimately a domestique in that squad now. I think Thomas will probably fare best because there's two long time trials that are both quite flat, um, and they will suit him uh, more than they will Carapaz and Gegenhart. I think Gegenhart as well, being a debutant at the Tour. Yes, he's won a Grand Tour, but race racing in the Tour de France is a completely different kettle of fish. So I think he may struggle. Uh, my my outsiders there, Simon Yates, top ten. I think he'll. Finish top 10, but one of those guys who finishes like 15 minutes down. So he'll, I think he'll sort of go in the stage hunt mode in the last week in the mountains and by doing that sort of bring back like four or five minutes most days and then just find himself like accidentally in the top 10. Wilco Kelderman from Bora Hansgrohe, fun fact about him, he's top forward in the Vuelta and the Giro. So he's got obviously got Grand Tour pedigree. But I just don't think he's good enough against the competition to sort of get break a top five. Uh, I like Nairo Quintana. I think he's a seasoned veteran of Grand Tour racing, a consummate pro. So it's always you can't you can never really overlook him for sort of top ten. Uh, and then I think I feel, I feel like Carapaz is a very good rider and will sort of race a really good race. But I think he will be let down by the fact that there is two long flat time trials of which Thomas Roglic and Pogacar are much more accomplished 
in that discipline. And I do feel like Carapaz will fall foul to the fact that Thomas will be leading on the GC for most of the race ahead of him. So he'll have to sort of undertake mountain domestic duties. But what I am excited about is that I don't think Ineos' tactics of sort of riding on the front will work against Roglic and Pogacar because I feel that they're both too strong. So I do feel like as a team, they'll have to employ some more exciting sort of more front foot tactics involving sort of longer range attacks, uh, multiple attacks on mountains, trying to get people like Carapaz or Gegenhart into breaks. So I do feel like we're going to have a more exciting race than we've had in years gone by with Ineos. Um, and how do you feel about Dan Martin? Is he going? Is he? Go- I don't even know if he's going because I thought he rode the because uh, he rode the Giro. So I don't know if he was doubling up. I thought they they're backing Michael Woods, the Canadian. But I don't think Michael Woods will get a top ten because he again can't time trial. I have a sneaking suspicion that Dan Martin might go. Okay, and you're just gonna you're gonna back him because he's. Uh, well, basically, I'm going to say this because we've, uh, if you've seen our Cyclist magazine, we have got Sherry Pridham, who is uh, Israel Startups um, DS and uh, yeah, the first uh, DS in the, at the World Tour who is female, and she hinted that he may be going, and certainly hinted that he is in sort of much finer form than Froome. And would they take someone who is, you know, would they put all their eggs in one basket? And Dan Martin just does routinely kind of creep up a bit of a freelancer as they say he sort of knocks about um in the upper echelons of gc uh and has good results now and then so i don't know it, obviously as you said it does remain to be seen whether or not he goes he has ridden the zero look that's your that's your prediction that's my prediction and i'm, and I'm welcome to it and at, at, at this stage we don't know if he's not going so he could be so it's not as foolish as it sounds but when you come to listen to this much time will have passed and it'll all be wrong the tour would have been cancelled i suspect yeah or I'd have got that completely wrong and uh, like Julian Alaphilippe will have won the tour in a blaze of glory yeah. um, and I'll look like a fool. <laughs> so, <laughs> but either way, um, that's my top 10. You can hold me to that. Cool. You know, that's on. That's recorded now. That's in the archives. BBC will have this in their sort of, in their big archives in uh, Kew Garden at some point because they keep a record of everything, don't they? I don't know. Yeah. No, no. And then every now and again they burn it. Yes, that's the one. Uh, like all the be- like all of the Beatles original tapes. Yeah. Um, anyway, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please do subscribe, share with your friends, with your cycling friends, and give it a like. Uh, spread the cyclist podcast word. Um, also, leave us a rating because that really helps to boost James and I's egos. Uh, Lindsay, thank you very much, our much patient producer, for doing a fantastic job as you always do, especially this week with our poor sound quality. We apologise again. And happy birthday, Lindsay, as well. Oh, and happy birthday, Lindsay. Yeah, it's your birthday. At some point this week, I, you didn't you didn't say the exact day, but happy birthday, Lindsay. Have a good one. Um, but for now, James, I'll chat to you again two weeks' time, halfway through the Tour de France. We'll have a little recap. Uh, but for now, I'll see you later. See you when I see you.